everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Catherine Druckman, and with me, as always, is Doc Searles. And we have a very special guest today. I'm very excited to introduce Gabriel Weinberg, founder of DuckDuckGo, which is not just a search engine. It is a whole privacy company, but I will let him give you a little bit more detail about that, and let, we can get started. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, so Gabriel, did you, when you started out, think that this is going to be a privacy company or did you start out saying, uh, I just want to have the, the private search engine? Neither. I, mm. I started out um, really just tinkering around with uh, making software and wanting to improve my own Google results. So this was uh. mid 2000s and um, I got to thinking that there hadn't been a search engine in a while, but um, I also got to thinking that I didn't like my Google results for a bunch of reasons that have become somewhat anachronistic. So like there was a lot of spam in Google at that time. There wasn't a lot of instant answers. Uh, so the things that, you know, come up right away, like from Wikipedia. And um, I thought I could just improve my own results that way. And so I set on that path first before um, actually building a search engine myself. Wow. So um, I I'm wondering, in, in, in getting the bad search results or the corrupted or whatever search results at the time, did you see that as entirely or only partially because Google was starting to personalize those results? Um, uh, you know, creating a nice little filter bubble just for you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was even before that, cause this was in 2007 timeframe and they really, I think started to dive into that a little later. And so it really was, you know, I never know why they took so long to remove spam from the results. <laughs> it, it might be the fact that they also ran AdSense, and so a lot, they were making money on both sides of that um, via these kind of content farms. And so there was like a financial incentive not to remove them. Um, but from my perspective, like you could just click on links and see that they were spam. And it was so obvious to me that I'm like, there's got to be an easy classifier that you could build to get rid of this stuff. And mm -hmm. so that's what I ended up doing. And then the same thing for instant answers. It's like, I'm constantly clicking to Wikipedia. Why can't I just get the Wikipedia results like immediately? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then once I actually built those things, I realized, wow, this, there's an idea for a search engine that is, you know, can you differentiate on not necessarily um, technical reasons, but for just better user experience reasons, Google's chosen to do things that you know is not the best for the user experience and so mm -hmm. i don't have to understand exactly why they won't remove spam but if i'm going to make the best user experience and, and remove spam that would be better for people and so then when i got down that track that's when um things like privacy design um the filter bubble all came into play with the formulation that what can i do what is the best user experience for search and kind of mm -hmm. how can we deliver that what 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 percent, I mean, do people have a sense of the degree to which you're dependent on Google or Bing or other giant search engines? Um, do people have a sense of that? I mean, I, I, for a while I thought, oh, you're kind of rebranding Google, but then I see the results are so very different. So I'm not really sure. I mean, do you, do, do, I mean, because you've got a pretty big mix in there. You've got Wikipedia, you've got some other things. So and it's very easy to visualize in, in your head. Okay, I know Google has some giant, is a giant company that's crawling everything at all times. And I understand that when I 
go to them. Um, but I don't have a, as clear a sense of what I'm getting with DuckDuckGo other than that I can trust it. Yeah, so, right. The central thing I think we're giving to people in general is trying to help them you know, get privacy online, reduce their digital footprint without sacrifice or thinking about it much, like seamlessly being able to trust. And it's not just search, as Catherine noted, like we're doing tracker blocking and a bunch of other things. Um, but for search in particular, it's really interesting. So like I said, I started thinking about instant answers before even really Google was into it. Mm -hmm. And in the last 10 years, more and more searches have been answered by instant answers. And in fact, there's a report going around Google about Google today that says half of their searches are result in no clicks because they're getting served by instant answers. And so, you know, the index itself has become less and less important. And so in 2007, when we started, like you, most queries were just answered by that index of web pages and you, you have to have that. Nowadays, there's about 20 different things you need. And if you don't have any of them, people will leave. And so those include things like maps, local restaurants, news, videos, you know, um, recipes, lyrics. There, there are all these things. Um, Wikipedia is one of them. And so each one of those categories, like we either have to build ourselves or partner with somebody else. And there's kind of two underlying premises there. One is, we set out and said, you know, generally a vertical search engine, say like Yelp for restaurants, like that's all they're about. And they're going to do a better right. job long term than the general search engine. Yeah. So if we, our technology could be more to route you in a private way to bring back that answer that you need at the right time, that would be a better experience than even Google trying to do it themselves with Google Places and whatnot. So what our technology has become is really like a categorization classification technology where you type in the query and we try to figure out what it is and pull back the right source at the right time. And some queries, it's a combination. It might have images, video, Wikipedia, news, and the links. Now, this circles back to your question. A couple of those areas it, are just vastly too expensive for us to operate ourselves still. Right. In fact, it's so expensive that most search engines that we're operating them all stopped. So when we started there was like five or six companies that were indexing the full web. And then there were another like five startups that were trying to do it. And the big ones that people heard of like Ask Jeeves was doing it. Ask, I mean, uh, Yahoo was doing it. Um, the index was doing it even in the US. All of those companies stopped. And now there's only two, uh, Bing and, and Google. And part of the reason is they're spending probably hundreds of millions up to a billion dollars a year on that problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've treated that as somewhat commodity and said, what can we do on top of that, that mm -hmm. better experience? And to some extent of us not working on that means we can build these other privacy technologies and focus on what we think we're better at, which is helping people protect their privacy. Um, but to answer your direct question too, is we're not using Google much for anything. Um, oh, the really? only thing we use Google for and I've ever used Google for is uh, YouTube, their YouTube video API, because it's the only place where videos exist. <laughs> Or most of the videos exist and so we have to actually access that api to figure out what videos are on youtube so i wondered if we could talk a little bit about your non-search products like you just mentioned um so you have a browser extension and i wondered if if you could talk a little bit about how that differs from 
existing extensions like Privacy Badger, Ghostery, uh, Ad Blockers, that sort of thing. And I wondered also if you could talk a little bit about adoption, because in, from my perspective, I would think that having a lot of those features, it's basically like, you know, you have the HTTPS everywhere is a competitor, I suppose, but you have that functionality, right? You, you're redirecting through secure sites. Having that all bundled into one, I would think would be very appealing to the general public. And has that worked out? I mean, can you talk about your adoption on that? Yeah. Uh, great question. Thank you. And feel free to cut me off if I'm being too long-winded. But it's good. You know, it, it, it's a it's a nuanced answer. So um, with the extension, you know, we have a much broader company vision to raise the standard of trust online. And we started that with the search engine. Um, but if you think about it, you're on the search engine, we're giving you anonymous search results. But then when you click off, now you're subject to the big bad web privacy policies of all these other sites you click on and there's all sorts of trackers there. And so we, what we had been saying for years is, you know, if you want to be fully protected, you need to do all these other things. You need to download um, a tracker blocker. You need to use something that upgrades your site um, to encryption. And what we found from a bunch of primary privacy research is mainstream consumers found that too confusing. Like the idea that you have to download multiple apps, different apps on different devices to like kind of get that full protection. And so our answer to that was, could we build one bundle of what we call privacy essentials that we could deliver on each major browser and device? And so we set out to do it initially in Safari, Firefox, Chrome, iOS, and Android. Um, and then additionally put everything we could on the search engine. And we tried to define that product experience as privacy simplified where you could just adopt it and you could get as much private browsing and search as you could actually get seamlessly. And so we added to that bundle, the private search engine tracker blocking encryption to upgrade your encryption to encrypted site if it's available. And then privacy grades where we would grade the experience based on um, what we're seeing. And yes, as soon as we did that, adoption um, increased and, you know, it, numbers aren't very public and so it's hard to say, but I think we're um, kind of the largest of those things at this point. Um, that said, what we, we can get delved into this more, we originally, like the search engine, decided to use kind of off-the-shelf components to the extent that they existed, like other people's lists or HTTPS everywhere. Um, and bundle them together. But what we determined over time was that for various reasons we get into this, that the lists weren't good enough. Um, and so we developed our own. And at this point, the encryption, we're about to uh, make these fully open source and, and give them to academics and whatnot, but we have, we're kind of still buttoning it up. Um, but at this point, like our encryption list is like 10 times the size, um, depending on the account, maybe 50 times the size of the HTTPS everywhere list. And the tracker blocker list is much more comprehensive as well. And it's also automatically generated from crawling versus some kind of manual people adding in kind of a wiki sense. And as a result, it has a lot less bias and other kind of problems we found with the lists, including breaking sites. Um, and so I can get into that more, but that's effectively kind of where we are at the moment. That's great. I mean, it, it's encouraging because I think, you know, half the battle, the, the privacy battle that I guess maybe we're all fighting um, is making it easy enough for, for everybody to use, right? But I, I wondered, and, and then I swear I'll let Doc get back to his train of thought, 
But I'm wondering, um, something that bothers me lately is that I keep hearing things like, well, I have nothing to hide or, oh, I kind of like the advertising to be relevant to me. And I just wondered from your perspective as somebody who's really out there promoting privacy in a big way, what your perspective is on how to educate people and how, how to frankly make them care and do we need to, and then how, What's the, what is the critical mass? How many people do need to care before uh, effective change happens? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think we've reached that critical mass because um, for the last two decades, no one has taken privacy legislation very seriously and now they are. And so I think there are lots of signs that's been one of them that a critical mass has kind of been reached. Another one is like, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica happened. And we also saw a big spike like that with Snowden in 2013. But that was a bigger national news story as it should be for about three months and then it died down. And so you would have expected the same thing to happen with Cambridge Analytica, but it's been literally 18 months nonstop of the press focused on privacy issues. And I think that's because they're hearing from page views and other feedback mechanisms that the public actually cares about it. But from our perspective, we actually do this research. And so we, we view our market essentially of the people you're talking about is people who don't just say they care, but who will take some action to actually re do something online to reduce your digital footprint. And we call that the care and act on privacy group internally. Hmm. And so we've been trying to model that group. And depending on how you count it, it's about a quarter of people in the US and in Europe and we haven't done much to study it outside of those regions. Um, and so when you look at a quarter, and it's been growing significantly over time as people kind of learn about these technologies. And so when you look at that, it's still a minority, right? But it's a large minority um, and a growing one. And I think in the next couple of years, you'll see that go up to closer to the 50% mark. That said, even when you're at the 50% mark, you know, you get a large group of people who still say they don't care. Maybe that group eventually becomes a minority, but you can never escape those people. But it doesn't mean that there are the ultimately majority of people who want to take some action. So that's kind of one thing I say about that. The second thing is it's very, um, it's very specific to the harms, right? So um, Pew did a lot of good research here where it's like when people have actual trade-offs um, and actual situations in front of them, like, protecting for um, identity theft, for example, they will take uh, issues, they will take action. And so um, it's more that education is about making the harm real to them. And so we've been trying to do that through more like relatable educational content, like videos and things like that. And the people who have watched these things, just r random mainstream people, start to really get it. Like the filter bubble is a good example. It's like mm -hmm. very esoteric academic concept, but if you can finally explain to somebody that they're not getting actually what they think they're getting, um, it, it kind of angers them. The same thing with like higher prices and individual price discrimination. Um, there are these triggers that people don't understand are happening and when they do, that kind of pushes them over the edge. Right. Th this is why you, you were so sh shocked by the election because everyone in your Facebook feed agrees with you. <laughs> right. And they understand, exactly. right? Yeah. Is there a herd immunity with f privacy where if enough adopters adopt it, the rest of us are protected? 
do you think? So that just popped into my head. So um, I, I think that there needs to be some actual regulation floor on some of these things because you're going to have a, some segment of the population that's not going to be educated enough, not going to make the decision, but mainly because they don't know what's going on. And right now they're just in the race to the bottom for tracking as a kind of ultimate surveillance. And so I kind of think you need the government to step in and say, you know, you can't do X, Y, or Z kind of tracking. Um, now to your point, it's related because it's to the critical mass point is like if there's enough critical mass there's enough critical mass to get that legislation passed and so there's a sense of herd immunity of like if enough people care about this we can get those results um but i i do think and that's why we keep working with government to try to i do think we need to pass some actual uh, legislation here let me ask about the work you're actually doing it seems to me like right now i mean i, I like your model legislation i think it's a good idea um and I say that even as, as a, you know, something of an old Silicon Valley libertarian type, you know. I, I'm in the same bench. I mean, it's like, I, I, I've always, my sort of one-liner about this is that most new laws protect yesterday from last Thursday. You know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then, they're, then they're laying around for another 50 years. But, but you've said before that you'd, you'd kind of like to see laws that could be tweaked as, as, as history changes. But, but I'm also wondering if, given the current climate, um, climate's not even the right word for it, but just the current situation in DC where the swamp is being drained aggressively and all that, whether it's possible to get anything passed right now. Um, obviously you've been on the case. So I'd like to hear more about how that's going. Yeah. I mean, um, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, mm. but from having doing this a few years, it feels palpably different right now than it has in the past. I think part of the reason is um, it, privacy has been swept up into a larger big tech kind of backlash. Right. And it's become a really, in the US at least, a presidential campaign topic. And so I, don't, I think it's going to be constantly in the kind of news and through 2020. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing related to that is, unlike almost every other issue, there is bipartisan overlap in wanting to do something here. Yeah. Uh, and so the question really, I think that the answer to that question is, can that overlap actually materialize into a bill that actually can come to a, a floor vote of some kind? And so that's what I was hoping with the do not track legislation is the people that are working on the bills now are trying to attack like, comprehensive privacy legislation of the form of like GDPR mm -hmm. and CCPA in California. Yeah. I think that's harder to get passed federally um, just because there's so many different nuances and stakeholders involved. And what I was hoping is they would then turn to say, we want to pass something. Why don't we pass something that we can all agree on that's relatively simple? And that's what I hope do not track legislation would be. Are you concerned that the W3C has sort of like dropped the whole do not track thing that they're and that and that Apple as well said, well, that's just another point to fingerprint people with so, sort of separate questions, but I'm just. Wondering. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think on the W3C side, they tried, but with no regulatory backbone there, they, you know, they, they did what they could. I mean, I, I know the people who are trying to spearhead that and they eventually just threw up their arms like they couldn't 
get the agreement. Yeah. That's why you need the legislation because there just wasn't enough um, stick there to like get something through that was effective. On the Apple side, I think if the government imposed it, they would come back to the table is my guess. Um, yeah. I think the fingerprinting argument is weak on that regard. Um, evidence kind of shows, but I think the better point, which maybe they didn't want to state, which is valid is the way that it's named, there's no other way to take it that you're going to mislead users. Like it says, do not track. And even no matter how many times you say it's voluntary and it's asking sites, most people are going to look at that and say, do not track. I think I'm going to turn it on and probably be tracked. Right. And, the, and they don't want to, Apple doesn't want to mislead people. And I think fundamentally the setting is misleading unless it has more teeth. That's true. Yeah. I think people assume that if, if you turn on something that says do not track, there's, you're not going to get tracked. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, it, it, does it, it, the word please isn't in front of that. Nor <laughs> is there a question mark at the end of it, right? I mean, the same, we, so we did research on that question. We also did similar research on private browsing and incognito mode. And, yeah. and people point back to us and they're like, oh, look, it's right in the fine print. Like literally when you open up the, 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 mo- the method in every browser, it has a whole like little, yeah, little blog like, of text. Yeah. But, you know, we did the survey. No one is reading that apparently, even though they open it a lot. And I think it's inherent in the name, like incognito. You feel mm-hmm. it's anonymous when it's not. Yeah, private mode or whatever it happens to be, right? There's the assumption that there's actually privacy there. Yeah, I think it's it, your own browser doesn't name. remember it, but the world can remember it. It's like, wait a minute. It just I, I, I don't remember this, but the, everybody else does. That's that's not right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I I am still hopeful that that can happen. The reason I also really like to not track legislation is it does. Um, two other things that may be a little subtle. One is um, it's a mechanism for the rest of the legislation to help people to easily opt out. Because right now with GDPR, you're getting tons of these pop-ups, which people call kind of notice and consent, and people don't know how to deal with them and they click on them. And it also really is just telling you that you're gonna be tracked a lot. It's not often a false choice of like, what Do Not Track does is it specifies limits and then you just opt in once or even it could be the default where you would need to opt out of it if you want to get rid of it and then sites just have to obey it so it's making the government do the hard work that's fine to attract um the other thing i like about it is if it works then it opens up the market for contextual advertising a lot more because right now part of the problem is is you could do advertising a lot better um even profitably without tracking people but there's no investment going into that but as, if you can get you know, track working and have 20, 30% of people in this bucket of no behavioral advertising, then it'll force the market to say, I'm going to invest in contextual advertising. Do you have any hope that um, the IAB or any of the outfits that are um, basically favoring behavioral advertising could get behind contextual more or any signs toward that? Um, you must have had some interaction with those guys at Randall Rothenberg and, and yeah, so. I mean, they came out with a do not track plus like press release yeah. a few weeks a few months ago. I didn't totally understand it to be honest. Um, I my gut reaction is if we can show that contextual advertising 
can be similarly profitable, which I believe that it can be, then I think publishers and people like the IV would get behind it because it's, it's, you know, it's a trade-off if you're a publisher, like what advertising you're going to use, you're going to use, try to use the most profitable one. Um, and I think it could be just as profitable. And so I think until that happens though, my guess is people will be protective of their current revenue and it's going to be hard to get people to come to the table like that. And that's what you saw with the do not track in the W3C. Yeah. Yeah. They so I guess I'm a little cynical around that. That's why I'm yeah, Well, I, I have too. It, it's funny. I mean, uh, Randall has invited me and paid me twice to come speak to the IAB to absolutely no effect whatsoever. Um, but, um, but there was, there was always this little door that was sort of open there. And, and I think that you're absolutely right about contextual advertising working. And in addition to that, though, I'm not sure you could do it on the web very well, but brand advertising has always worked. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, brand, I mean, there's a reason, the reason I know 15 minutes will save me 15% with Geico is I watch a lot of sports, right? And it's not personal and it doesn't hurt Geico at all that I don't use them at all. I, I'm, I haven't used them ever. Um, but their brand is known to the world and there's not a single brand known to the world that's been made by behavioral advertising at all, you know, it, the trillions maybe have been spent on that. And I, and I, I have to wonder whether or not, and maybe you've heard this too, I, the advertisers themselves, none of which call themselves advertising. Proper example is not an advertising company. You know, they make, they make goods, you know, when they sell those goods um, and having operated and been a partner in an ad agency for 20 years, um, I know that, those guys can cut that off in a heartbeat. In other words, it's not like, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's on the expense side of the balance sheet, advertising is. There's a lot they can do. And so I'm wondering if you've had any interaction with any of the big advertisers on that same thing, saying, well, wait a minute, maybe this, maybe all the waste we're putting into this, where, I mean, shit, like when I, when I was with the ad agency, our clients carped about us taking 15%. You know, and now like what's getting through three, five, 12, 30% maybe to the actual publisher, right? So um, the advertisers have to be getting, you know, in a, in a pickle on this thing too. So have you talked to them at all? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think you're right. I think part of the problem has been, it's been very opaque, right? So the yeah. advertising industry moved to behavioral programmatic and it's largely been Google and Facebook over the last 10 years. And there's been very little data out there to compare. And so the data, it's just starting to come out now, I think with all these conversations. And so there was a study that was written up in the journal a few months ago from um, this uh, professor Alessandra at CMU and some other people showing that on a major publisher site, which was undisclosed, that behavioral was only getting 4% more uh, revenue to the publisher than the contextual. And that's not totally the advertiser perspective, but I think it plays into it because what his yeah. conclusion was with the whole thing was it, it's not that the behavioral was not necessarily more effective for what they were doing. Although I would argue that if contextual was invested in, it could be just as effective. But was that the ad middlemen were taking 60, 70% to your point. Yeah, off, yeah. Off. And so that's not good for advertisers or the publishers, right? And so if the publishers were doing contextual, you know, they don't need this crazy behavioral like complex that Facebook and Google have made to actually 
do the contextual advertising. There might be another platform that takes less rate. You know, the New York Times, there was another story that they increased revenue by getting rid of behavioral to contextual by just going back to selling the advertising themselves. Yeah. And so potentially when you go to contextual or brand advertising, you can just cut out a lot of this middleman concept that has happened over the last 10 years. And part of the issue right now is there's no, there's no way to bypass it because the audience is all coming through those platforms. But if you can bootstrap it from do not track or something you can get a large audience, then now you can bypass the ad networks. You can, you know, start to give more share to the publishers. The advertiser gets higher ROI from it and kind of everyone wins. Um, but I've been just trying to figure out a way to kickstart that process. Right. Yeah. Well, I think some of it's just going to be the accumulated weight of sympathy over time, you know, that you were talking about earlier, that there's, there's a certain tipping point that's bound to happen. Um, especially with these big guys falling out of favor. Yeah. There's also sympathy with the, including with like the media. I mean, like literally the media companies going out of business <laughs> because they right. money. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Tell us about it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you're out of business. You didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, in in that direction, so one of the ways that I have been personally a steady irritant to the big publishers and have talked to all of them um, is that they're not willing to examine themselves. They're not willing to, I mean, even there's a case of the New York Times where, um, in that case, they, the long interview with my wife and me, they ended up quoting my wife, um, who is a much more privacy-oriented individual than I am. She's got the little piece of tape over the thing and, and so forth. Uh, uh, but, you know, in the draft that they sent her and me to approve, um, it said, oh, you're being spied on everywhere, including, and they said, this newspaper. And I thought, well, that's a little bit of a step. And when it ran, it said, your newspaper, not this one. And that was the New York Times, right? And, but I, but I, I sense at some point, one of them is going to say, I'm going to grab that third rail. And you know what? We're in this game too. And when that happens, I think we're going to see a shift. So That's interesting. I mean, there was, yeah. there was a, um, there's a publication that just got launched called The Markup, which. Yeah. This is a, a Julia Anglin's thing. Yeah, independent yeah. issues with, with that, but she's relaunching it and um, they have committed to having no trackers on their site. Yeah, which they would have to. I mean, it, it, right, that's, that's true. But I'm like, that's like a small, like, you know, step towards that future. You know, it's yeah. not been like the Times. I mean, it's interesting, like what the Times could do, which would be interesting, or the Journal or somebody with a paywall that's working could say, if you're behind the paywall, certainly, like, we're turning off all trackers, you know? Yeah, um, they haven't done it yet. I, I'm, I don't subscribe to the journal anymore. Just price me out. But the times they do. And the trackers are still there, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's like... Fair, and they are at the New Yorker, and they are at the other ones they subscribe to. Or charge another, like, Hulu has a subscription. I don't know if you have ever seen that or use that, but you can pay a little more to get rid of the advertising. Mm -hmm. I, I pay for it. I don't, I don't know because they don't make clear whether that also gets rid of all the tracking. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sure it probably reduces it. But like the New York Times could do that too. Like, okay, it's X dollars a month. It's a X 50 to like 
also get rid of all the tracking because they, they probably don't make hardly any advertising money off of that subset. Yeah, I, I think it's a little like, um, I'm old enough to remember how both smoking and drunk driving went from normative to completely, almost completely anyway, ostracized. Yeah, I lived through the smoking one. Uh, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know, suddenly that is not okay. You just don't do it, you know, you go out there somewhere and do it out there, but you can't do it in a, in a, in a... That's a good analogy. Yeah, that's what always bothers me about this. People saying, well, you know, privacy's got to get over it kind of thing. It's, it's like you said, it's a normative choice of society of where you want to draw the line. And every other technology has all sorts of regulations and social norms that pull it back, you know, like medical, nuclear, military technology, et cetera. So why wouldn't you do that for yeah. technology? It's kind of absurd to think that you wouldn't. Yeah, I struggle a little bit, sorry, with, with um, yeah, you know, this idea of the refusal to let go of ad tracking because I think we've all, you know, those of us who have publishing backgrounds, we've seen the, the return on that diminish to almost nothing you know and 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 the things that that are really um benefiting advertisers um vendors whatnot more are more targeted content sponsorship or you know things that don't rely on tracking like we you know doc said earlier you know no brands have been made off of this they uh they benefit far more from from other types of programs so I realize that there's more to the tracking than just behavioral advertising, but if you're just talking about, you know, display ads, why, you know, why are we so reluctant? We being, you know, the entire publishing industry or, or, you know, the entire, uh, you know, I don't know, internet. Why are we so reluctant to give that up? I, I, I get it's still a huge revenue stream, but it's, it's not, one that's uh, that's increasing. So why is it, why is it even still a thing? It's a good question. I mean, I wonder just if there just aren't really well formulated alternatives like that. That's how I felt about search. Ultimately, you know, it's like the argument was, you know, you have to do it this way. You have to do the filter bubble because it produces good search results, and effectively, it doesn't. And like, um, and, and and Google and Bing back off of it. But like until there's an alternative that like someone made to switch to, they can keep making that argument. And I wonder if it's the same in advertising. Like there just hasn't been someone to really go out there and try to make this alternative ad network um, or had done it well. But I think they should. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, you could do like the, the travel industry, you know, kind of got together and made orbits and they, you know, the media industry, invested and made Hulu as an alternative to Netflix, like the publishing industry should get together and kind of make their own consortium ad network that does this. That would be an ideal situation, but I don't know why they haven't done it. Maybe it's just a collective active action problem. Mm. I, I think that there've been some small efforts um, and especially at the local level there, I can't remember the name of it, but there's an organization that's entirely of local um, news organizations. And part of, Part of the impetus there is that an interesting thing about fake news is it's very hard to do it at the local level. Um, you know, you can you can 
you could say Pope endorses Trump and that's, you know, that's, that's intergalactic um, fake news, but, but you can't say there wasn't an earthquake yesterday when in fact an earthquake happened, you know, and it's right there and people don't know what happened there. And so, um, so part of, part of my own thinking about this is that um, one of the ways is we kind of build up where we're going with this thing is going to start locally to some degree. Uh, by the way, I'm just curious, did you pay attention to local at all in your own own work with the search results or with anything else? That's completely off yeah, the whole question. Local, local search results in general. I mean, we yeah. were, um, yes, the answer is yes. We've tried. Yeah. <laughs> local is a, um, is a large and increasing part of the query space in general, as, mm. as in the rise to mobile. It's like a large percentage of queries are local related, whether it's it's usually like local businesses, but news is also a part of it. I'd like to sort of take a, a long view. I'm going to put, posit something that's uh, is a corollary to something I often say or think, which is the older I get, the earlier it seems, uh, which is that, you know, we've had the internet in its current form maybe for less than 25 years, really since it went commercial in 1995. Um, we've only had mobile really for about 10 years in its current form, you know, that iPhones and Androids, this is not much in the history of business or in the history of culture. Um, and it changes so fast. Nothing's older than a movie in which people have a brick phone or they've got even a flip phone or something. It's like, wow, that's from way back then. Um, do you take a long view on this thing? Like, you know, we're playing this in a, you know, we're, it's still early here. We're going to, you know, but we have some ideas about where this thing goes over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right. And that's kind of how I feel about it is like, you know, often just even, even looking at it from Washington, you know, they often don't touch things for about 20 years <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh boy. Yeah. And, that's about the time we're in, you know, like these mm -hmm. things happened in the late nineties, the first piece of regulation. And so, um, I take a long view that this is going to take multiple years to start to get something on the books. And then it's going to be this revision process and, um, we're changing norms right now. And I think you have to take that long view. Good. Well, let, let, let me ask one more question we can, um, uh, which is, um, you, you have communities around DuckDuckGo. Uh, um, how much do you take direction from that? How much, how much are, I mean, one of the things that, that energizes me is knowing that, uh, for every company, customers know more than the company does, you know, like that the bulk of knowledge about a, any company is actually not on the inside. It's on the outside. And I'm just wondering to what extent you're dependent on that. And you get, that's your weather vane or your telltale at the top of the mast. It is. I mean, so we have a, even bigger challenge. I think a lot of companies become inward focused because they kind of like look at their own metrics and they're, you know, just sit in their kind of ivory tower and look at things. But like, we don't have a lot of metrics because we don't do any user tracking. So <laughs> like we have a harder time doing that without kind of like looking outside and talking to people. And so um, we're constantly kind of trying to look at the stream of things coming in and, and do that. We had a much more directed effort um, around instant answers where for several years we did a kind of encouraging people to kind of build this instant answer open source community. We could never 
get that to scale. And so kind of we ultimately kind of put it on maintenance mode and then moved on to these apps and our current apps and extensions, which are our, our privacy solution where we kind of went beyond search. And those are both, those are all open source too. And so we kind of encourage people to kind of move from one to the other. Um, but most generally, yeah, we, we are, we're constantly looking to the outside for input. Okay. So your, your community itself, like you have a wiki, like kind of a Reddit wiki thing and all that. Is that, how active is that? How, how much are you following that? Yeah, we follow it uh, all the time. We, so we, we had a, we built a whole community site, duck.co. And then we ultimate, we had a forum there for many years. And then we ultimately decided, because the Reddit community happened um, yeah. almost, you know, without us. <laughs> and yeah. then it, it became more vibrant. And so we ultimately decided to move to that. And so we maintain that community. We maintain just the one on Twitter a lot too, which is, you know, much messier as a community. Goes. <laughs> but yeah. It is, it, we do interact there all the time. Um, and those are kind of the two like main focus ones we do. And then, and then just direct to us, we have like a feedback box on every search result page. And we're like constantly getting all sorts of feedback related to that, as you can imagine, which we just kind of read and digest. That's great. Well, have we left uh, all turns unstoned? Uh, <laughs> I think so, at least for, at least for this time. <laughs> ah, thank you so much for, for doing this and for, and for the work that you do. You know, we need more people like you to keep those of us with our t tight tinfoil hats uh, <laughs> somewhat protected. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope we can yeah, stay in touch and maybe there's other things we can work on together. Love to. Love to. Thanks, thanks a lot, Gabriel. Cool. Nice to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you.